This morning we're looking at, a, we're continuing our study, our verse-by-verse study through the book of Romans. And this morning we're looking at an amazing subject, Israel. We're looking at their history and what happened. And we're looking this morning at how God is not finished with Israel. But i got to ask you all this question this morning. And I feel like the Lord gave this to me this morning. I want to ask you the same thing that I asked our setup crew. And it's this. What table are you eating at? Spiritually speaking, what table do you sit at when it comes to the Lord? Are you feasting and partaking of his mercy, his grace, his truth? That's the table that we need to be at. The other table that, that this presented to all men, there's the table of truth. The Lord Jesus Christ, he died on the cross for our sins. He rose from the grave. We put our trust in him. His Holy Spirit comes and dwells inside of us. And we live in that joy. We, we live in that fervor in, in serving him and doing it joyfully. But the other table is the table of religion. It's the table of tradition. It's the table of do's and don'ts and legalism. God wants you at that first table. He wants you seated at that first table, enjoying the Christian life and being blessed because the scripture says his mercies are new every day. His faithfulness continues every day in our life. And that's the table he calls us to this morning. And we're going to see in the scriptures this morning that in first century Palestine, Israel didn't partake. They didn't partake of that table. They, they chose the table of tradition, of legalism, uh, of religion. And it's not the table that God wants men at. He wants us at his table of truth and grace and mercy and him being real in our lives. Amen? Amen. Amen. So turning your Bibles to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, this morning we're looking at verses 1 through 15. Great passage of scripture on, on Israel. If you dare, say amen. Amen. All right, let's take a look at it. Romans chapter 11, verse 1. I'm going to read through verse 5. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have torn down your altars. And I, I alone am left. And they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response? How does God respond to him? He tells Elijah, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way then, there has come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. Question for you this morning. What is the greatest story of survival that you know of in the world? Some ones that came to my mind this week were, how about Apollo 13? How those men had to, had to uh, go around the moon and risk their lives to get back in that pod, back to the earth. How about the uh, 33 um, Chilean miners who were trapped down below the earth and who were miraculously saved? Those are great stories of survival. And I know many of them have probably come to your mind, but let me tell you this. The greatest story of survival in the history of civilization is the story of the survival of the Jewish people, the Jewish nation, the, the Jewish people. Queen Victoria asked the prime minister once, she says, 
show me one thing that proves that the Bible is true. The prime minister responded to her and said, the Jews. The Jewish nation, the Jewish people, the people that have survived so much. We're going to dive into this big next week. Okay, next week we're going to dive into this big, but they have been through so much. Everything from the Holocaust to the plague of thir- the Black Plague of 1350 when they were blamed to the Crusades, what was meant, the, uh, the papacy in the church wanted to clear the Holy Land uh, of the Muslims. And what did they end up doing? Not only taking them out, they ended up taking all the Jews out. But time after time throughout history, and we see it today, there's roughly 5 million Jews in the Holy Land today. But guess what? That's a lot of people, 5 million. But guess what? They're surrounded by 100 million people that don't like them. So they've had a rough time. But why are they still in existence? The question is simply this. God is not finished. God is not finished with the Jewish nation. Um, Zechariah 2.8 says that um, Israel is the apple of God's eye. They are the covenant people. To them was given the Abrahamic promise, the Abrahamic covenant from uh, Genesis chapter 12. He promises them what? A land, a people, and a kingdom. And they still haven't been fulfilled, but they will be fulfilled after Christ returns and we go through the great tribulation and he restores Israel. So they're, um, they're the apple of God's eye. They're the greatest survival story, but it's because of God's sovereignty. So um, turn, turn with me back two chapters. Or turn back to Romans chapter 9. I want to show you one verse real quick. Go back a couple pages to Romans chapter 9. Look at verse 4, talking about how special Israel is. Romans 9, 4 says this, Who are Israelites? To whom belongs the adoptions as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises? Whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh who is over all? God blessed forever. Amen. What makes Israel so special? There's a whole bunch of things, but I just want to highlight three of them. One, the law came through them. Those Ten Commandments, in, in our court system and, 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 and on courtrooms came from the Jewish nation, came through God giving them through the Jewish nation. Secondly, the Messiah, Jesus, he came through who? Through the Jewish nation. And the promises, the Bible that you have in your hand right now, the Bible that you're looking at, is, is a blessing through the Jewish nation. 64, possibly 66 books of the Bible were written by Jewish authors. It's amazing. So with that said, let's pray, and we'll get into Romans chapter 11. Father, thank you for your word now. And Lord, as we dissect your word, and we get into it, and we mine it for truth, and, tr- and, and just study it, Lord, um, encourage us, and teach us more, and help us to be thankful for the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, and help us to make careful application to our lives today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. All right, Romans chapter 11, chapter 11, verse 1. The Apostle Paul says, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. For I, too, am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Now, the first thing he says here, he says, may it never be. God has not rejected his people. Literally, God forbid that he has rejected his people. 
He has kept them. Uh, Paul says here in this passage, he says, I am the evidence. Look, he says uh, in, in verse 1, he says, I too am an Israelite. He's presenting himself as the evidence that God is not done with the Jewish nation. That they can still turn to Christ. This is encouraging because who was Paul? Paul was the greatest enemy of Christianity before he came to Christ. He persecuted the church. He had Stephen's blood on his hands by giving approval to the stoning of Stephen. He, he hated the church. He, he hated Jesus. And for anyone, for any people that come to our mind, this hard-hearted, this religious, or, or this a persecutor, there's hope. There's hope as we see in Paul's life. If he can save Paul back then with the hardest of hard hearts, he can save people today. There is hope for that friend who's rebelling against God. Pray for them. Witness to them. God can break through to their life. You know, as I read these first two verses, the thing that came to my mind thinking about the Apostle Paul is this. There's no one beyond redemption. There's no one in this world, I don't care how evil, how bad, how sinful, there's no one beyond the redemption of God. There's no one that he can't transform. The hardest of hearts he can transform. And that is what makes our gospel so beautiful. Is that he takes a hard heart, he takes a religious heart, and he transforms it into a Holy Spirit-filled heart that serves him. Amen? Amen? Amen. Let's look at the second half of uh, verse 2 here. Or do you not know that the scripture says in the passage about Elijah how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have torn down your altars. And I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way, then, there has also come to be at this present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. Now, Israel as a nation, they, they rejected Christ. They rejected Christ. But even when a nation or a people group rejects Christ, there will always be those people that are faithful. There will always be people that respond to the gospel. Back then and even today, society as a whole may reject God, but there will always be a remnant. There will always be people who embrace, who embrace the gospel and trust in Christ. And the illustration he gives us here is from 1 Kings chapter 18, where Elijah is in the wilderness. Jezebel has threatened his life, and he runs all the way down to Mount Sinai because he did what? He slayed over 400 Baal prophets. And she's upset. He slayed these prophets he showed the people of Israel who was God. He proved Ahab wrong. And this woman threatens his life, and he runs in fear. He runs in fear. He's scared of her. I don't know why, but he was. But anyway, look at verse, look at verse 3. It's not a pity party, but it's an it's a, oh me complaint from Elijah to God. Look at verse 3. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have torn down your altars. And I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. That was Elijah's thought. I'm the only one left, God. There's nobody else. Here's your faithful remnant. What does God say in verse 4? He says to Elijah, 
I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. God was telling Elijah, you don't know it all and you're not sovereign. And yes, you are being faithful to me. But at the same time, I have 7,000 other men who have, not, who have not bowed their knee to a false god and who are serving me. And then we fast forward to the New Testament where Paul is writing this in the first century. And God is saying, Paul, you're not alone. Paul, you're not alone. You're not the only faithful believer in the first century. Acts 2.41 says that um, 3,000 got saved on that day. Acts chapter 4 verse 4 says 5,000 came to Christ. There were faithful people throughout the whole Palestine and Roman world. There were people that were faithfully serving Christ. Fast forward to 2017, and God says to us today, he says, I am at work around the world. I am at work around the world in Irmo, in Lexington, in Greenville, Spartanburg, Charleston, in Texas, in California, and throughout, throughout the whole world, throughout Europe, Africa, Asia, China. I have faithful servants, I like to say servants, serving me and being faithful. Never, we should never get to a point where we say, well, we're the frozen chosen or we're the remnant. Don't have the same attitude as that of Elijah, but understand that God is at work throughout the whole world because the gospel goes forward with or without us. Amen? The gospel goes forward with or without us. And all we can do, all we can do is jump on the train and say, Lord Jesus, I want to serve you. I want to give you my life and I want to get on this train, and I want to serve in the kingdom of God. What makes a faithful servant, what makes a faithful believer, simply put, in layman's terms, is you're faithful to Christ. You trust in Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. You trust not in your works, but you trust in grace. You trust in grace, in his unmerited favor. And second thing, you're faithful to his word. You're faithful to his word. It's not complicated. You don't have to go to Bible college to learn all this. You can serve the Lord where you're at by trusting in Christ, living for him, making him the center, focal point of your life, and then being faithful to what you read and what you learn in his word. Amen? Let's look at verse 6. For it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace is no longer grace. Now, grace and works are two exclusive, separate systems. Grace is God's unmerited favor. We like to say God's riches at Christ's expense. It's what God has lavished on us through Jesus Christ. He's given us his grace. He's given us his unmerited favor. He's given us forgiveness. He's given us mercy. He's shown us compassion. He's given us love by what? Through his grace. The flip side of that is works. What, what is works? When you look at works in the Bible, it's simply this. It's legalism. It's legalism. It's when you take your trust off of Jesus and you place it in your good deeds. Well, I'm a good person. That is legalism. And that is not what God calls us to. He calls us not to trust in our works, but to put our trust in him and be under the system of grace. Who wants to be under grace? Amen? don't want to be under law because you can't keep the law. Works, it, it brings bondage. It brings death. 
Because if you're living on the basis of works and legalism, you can never match up. And you can't. You can't and I can't. But guess who can? Jesus. The Lord Jesus Christ. He matches up to God's righteousness and we trust in him and he gives us his righteousness. Grace brings a new heart. It brings a a new love for Christ. And out of that love, works as part of the Christian life, but it's out of that love, out of that trust, because we love him so much and we trust him so much, out of that comes an obedient life. Out of that comes a desire that says, Lord, I want to live for you. I want to live for you and I want to obey you with my life. It's never the other way. It's always grace in our heart, love for God, and out of that, an obedient life where we do good works for him and we go out and we serve people. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's look at verse 7. Verses 7 through 10 is huge. It's it's huge here. I I mentioned when I first started my sermon, I says, God presents before us two tables. One table is the table of truth. It's the table of mercy. That's the table he wants us feasting at. The other table is legalism, tradition. The, uh, the table of religion, it brings spiritual blindness. There's no desire for truth. There's no desire to see things spiritually. Let's look at verse 7. We're talking about Israel. What then? What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. What was Israel seeking? They were seeking righteousness. But notice verse 7. It says, it was not obtained. Why was it not obtained? Why was righteousness not obtained? Because they rejected Yeshua, Messiah, the Christ. And, and what happens at the end of verse 7? It says they were hardened. Their hearts were hardened. This is what happens when, when you resist truth. When you resist truth, your heart becomes hard. And, and your heart can't see. You can't see spiritual truth. You can't see spiritual reality when, you're, when your heart is hardened to truth and to Scripture. You're, you're blinded. You're blinded. These, they, they don't make no sense. Verse 8. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David says, here it is, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. What was their table? I've already said it several times. But the table that the Jews in the first century, the Pharisees, sat at spiritually was legalism, tradition, and self-righteousness. They trusted in their own good works. They didn't put their trust in the Lord. They weren't even following their Old Testament scriptures where it says Abraham believed God. It was credited to him as righteousness. Proverbs 3, 5, many of us, that's our life verse. Old Testament, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your path. But they chose the table of legalism. Here's the application for you this morning. This is, this is what I want to pose to you this morning. 
is this. There's, know this and understand this from this sermon this morning. There are two tables set before all men. There's two tables set before me and you. There's two tables set before all men throughout the world. One is the table of truth. One is the table of religion. One leads to life. The other leads to bondage and being religious. The table of truth, John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Simply put, Jesus died on the cross for me. And I receive that by faith. And I stand in grace. And I partake of his mercy, his love, his forgiveness, his compassion. That's the table. That's what he serves me at this table of truth. And I take that, this new relationship with God through Jesus, this table of truth. I take that and I take it to the world. And I share this. That's the table that God wants us to share with people. That's the table he presents to us. The second table is the table of religion. And this is what the Pharisees partook of. And this is what religion in today's world partakes of. It's, it's works righteousness. Look at me. Look how holy I am. Look how perfect I am. When in reality, you know they're not. But it's, it's, it's focusing on the outer the table of religion it focuses on legalism, you know, obeying the laws, obeying the laws, obeying the laws. And what does it do? It, it leads you into bondage. It leads you into bondage because you and everybody else in this world is like the rest of us. We're fallen. We're fallen, we're fallen because of sin, and we need grace and not tradition. We need truth. And not, and not legalism. Uh, if man, if people choose the table of religion and then building a ladder to God, then say, I'm going to do it my way. And God, I, I know your way, but I'm going to do it my way. If they choose that path, verse 10, look at verse 10, is what they will be served. When you don't do it God's way, it says, verse 10, let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. It says in verse 10, their eyes are darkened and they can't see. In other words, that you're blind to spiritual truth and you can't see the glory. You can't see the glory in Jesus Christ. You can't see him in all his magnificence and his glory that the Lamb of God, slain at Calvary, exalted to the right hand of the Father in heaven, seated high, seated high and lifted up and holy. You, you, you don't see that. You can't see that glory because your spiritual eyes are darkened. And notice it says there in verse 10, it says, uh, and, and bend their backs forever. What I believe Paul has in mind here is, is a picture of Roman slavery. Of Roman slavery. In other words, you choose to do it man's way and not God's way. You're going to be bound by legalism. You're going to be bound by tradition. And it's going to enslave you. Your, you, your back will be bent forever in bondage and slavery. 
when you do it your way, but when we do it his way, we sit at the table of truth. Always remember that your relationship is based on grace, is based on truth, is based on love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And out of that love, out of that faith, comes an obedient life. That's the table that he wants us seated at. Verse 11. I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. By their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Okay, by their transgression, what was their transgression? The rejection of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it says what? Salvation has come to the Gentiles. Who is that? That is us, the church. That is us, the church. God has temporarily, temporarily put Israel on the shelf and we are now living in what we call the church age where the church is his primary means of working through the earth. Does it mean that Jewish people can't be saved? Absolutely. They can, they can be saved. They can come to Christ. They come to Christ just like you and I come to Christ through faith in Jesus Christ. What's the, um, there's a big organization right now, Jews for Jesus. You know, how dare us pass judgment on even what's taking place in Israel today? God has a remnant throughout the world, as this passage saw. There are faithful believers and faithful Christians even in the land of Israel, just like there are faithful believers and Christians throughout the whole world. And we need to be praying for them as they evangelize Israel. Verse 12 says this, Now, if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? Okay, their rejection as a nation is only temporary. One day, God will turn his attention back to the nation of Israel. And most of us, we put that landmark on the rapture of the church where we're living in the church age the next prophetic event will be the rapture of the church where Jesus Christ returns. And then God will turn his attention back to the nation of Israel. If you want to understand Bible prophecy, if you go out and get some good books on Bible prophecy and you, and you want to understand it, put the crosshairs on the nation of Israel. Because everything is around them. Everything focuses around the nation of Israel. Amen? Amen. Amen. Verse 13. But I am speaking to you who are Gentiles inasmuch then as I am an apostle of the Gentiles. I love this. I magnify my ministry if somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. Notice what Paul says there. He says, I magnify my ministry. Paul is wanting the Jewish people, his Jewish brethren, to see how beautiful the gospel is. He wanted them to see how great and how glorious and how magnificent and how awesome Jesus is. And another principle here, too, is, is know this. Ministry is never in vain. Let me repeat that. Ministry that you partake of, ministry that you put your hands to, is never in vain. It's all for his glory. 
That's why whatever ministry you do, whether it's vacuuming, hosting a home group, leading a Bible study, setting up chairs, doing sound system, doing worship team, serving in your community, no matter what ministry you do, do this. Magnify it. Magnify it. Do it with all your heart. Do it with excellence. Whatever ministry you do, working with the children, do it to exalt Jesus. Do it to exalt the Lord. Because what we're doing is we're showing people in our ministry that we partake of and that we put our hands to, we are showing people how great God is. Amen? Amen. Amen. How great God is. And what it does is, is, is our ministry, it makes us show how great he is, how magnificent he is. It shows them, it shows the world, it shows other believers, it shows people his power working in us. And that's what we need more than anything. It's his power working in us and through us so we can make people jealous and say, hey, I want to know more about this Jesus. I want to know more about what's going on at church and in ministry. Verse 15, if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? One day, God will turn his attention back to the nation of Israel. And, and one day, we'll all be in heaven. Neither Jew, nor Greek, nor male, nor female, nor, nor Jew, nor Gentile. But we'll all be worshiping him together. You know, um, we need to pray for the Jewish nation of Israel. We need to support them. But the most important thing is this. We need to learn from them. Learn from their mistakes. I go back to my very first question. What table are you feasting at? What table are you feasting at? Are you feasting at the table of truth? Are you feasting at the table of grace? Are you feasting at the table of mercy? Out of that, are you feasting at the table of obedience? And surrender to Christ. That is the table he wants you at. That was the table he wanted them at. But they rejected it. They chose the other table. The other table leads to bondage. What table will you feast at? Soften your heart. Get in your prayer closet. Spend time in his word and feast at his table. Amen? Amen. Amen. Father God in heaven, thank you, Lord, for this time in your word. Lord, bring us to your table of truth in sincere devotion and spending time in your word, experiencing your grace, your truth, the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, let us experience those things in our heart and in our mind, God. That's what we need more than anything is to sit at your table of truth through your word. Lord, uh, we are alive. Lord, we are alive. We are alive in you, Lord Jesus. We are alive in fellowship. We are alive in your word. Let that truth resonate in our hearts. Mm. In Jesus' name I pray, Father. Amen. Amen.
Thank you for listening with us. We hope this message has been a blessing to you today. We pray you too will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead and be saved. If you would like to join us during our Sunday service, we meet at 10 a.m. at 110 Hunters Village Drive in Irmo, South Carolina. If you would like to talk to a pastor or are in need of pastoral counseling, feel free to call us at 803-917-8792. Oh, come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was born.